1: How can you have a good brand if you haven't established a company culture? How can you have a culture if you don't fully understand your brand? And what do either of these two terms really mean? Well, lucky for you, that's exactly what we're going to talk about with my guest today. What's up, storytellers? Welcome back to the Storytelling Lab. This is episode 144, and today I have not one, but two amazing guests, Mark Miller and Ted Vaughn, the authors, the co-authors of Culture Built My Brand. My background is in documentary filmmaking. I have done a lot of work over the years with nonprofit organizations, and I'm still passionate about that. That is the world that Ted and Mark come from helping nonprofits understand their culture and brand. But it really applies to anybody, specifically small to medium businesses or, or solopreneurs or nonprofits, anyone that, as I like to say, is overwhelmed and under-resourced, right? You have so many things on your plate, so many things to do that often things like culture and brand get neglected. Listen, I'm a co-founder of a startup right now. Same thing happens with those type of teams where it's scrappy and you don't have a lot of people and everyone wears multiple hats and it's real easy to focus on if you're a nonprofit, maybe the cause or the purpose or the mission, and if you're a startup or a commercial enterprise, just the bottom line or just making money and just trying to find out your product without establishing the culture and brand. Now, as Ted and Mark will say, and really any branding expert will tell you, it is never too early to start thinking about that culture and brand because it determines and dictates all the decisions you make moving forward about who your product is for and how you deliver it and your why behind everything. Now, historically, people view these two things, culture and brand, as separate uh, concepts, if you will. You know, the culture that you have at your company and what that looks like, and the brand, the outward representation of that company. However, what I love so much about this conversation and their book is it talks about, first of all, that's inaccurate and incorrect, but secondly, how and why they intersect and the power that you can leverage when you do that effectively. This is the final episode of season 10 of the Storytelling Lab, and it is an amazing one to go out on because I was really, really impressed with not only their knowledge and their grasp of the concept, but their ability to convey the concepts, you know, deep, dense, nuanced concepts in simple visual ways. So the way they explained things was really helpful to me, and hopefully it will be to you as well. So, here is my conversation with Mark Miller and Ted Vaughn, and I hope that you love it.
0: Welcome to the Storytelling Lab, where we break down how to get to the heart of your story and the hearts of your audience. leave the greatest impact possible and now here's your host award-winning
3: filmmaker and writer rain bennett
1: what's up my beautiful people welcome to another episode of the storytelling lab where we help you break down the art and science of storytelling my name is rain bennett i am your host and my job is to help you deepen your connections increase your sales and serve your audiences better every tuesday morning i send out a quick storytelling tip to my newsletter subscribers I show you techniques I've learned along my journey and used in my own stories, as well as those of my clients. But most importantly, I leave you with tangible takeaways that you can apply to your brand storytelling immediately. Oh, well, actually, more importantly than that, it's free. If this would help you, sign up for the newsletter at rainbennett.com slash weekly storytelling tips. Ted, Mark, welcome to the Storytelling Lab. Glad you're here.
3: Thanks. For Grateful to be here. Yes,
1: absolutely. I was just telling you all uh, that this is the fir- my first three way on the show. So I'm very excited about uh, what unexpected turns this conversation <laughs> yeah. might take. Uh, okay, so let's get into it. Um, first thing, l- I love the book cover. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to dive into that. Just my first simple, straightforward question is the part where, you know, culture, uh, built my brand. And then the word eight was scratched out. I got to know the backstory and the meaning behind that. I'm sure it's, you know, this is not an
3: original question, but still I'm interested. I mean, I will start Mark, and Mark can give the, the more accurate version. <laughs> we, we've lived culture eating brands and the book was written because it was our experience in the, in the beginning of our kind of agency years, of having amazing brand and amazing story and amazing solutions and having the failure point be an inability for people, for leaders to own it, to communicate it, to message it, to cascade it, which is a culture problem. And we we kept seeing it. We kept trying to address it. We kept factoring it into our work, but we didn't have any kind of formal approach or way to solve it, and it wasn't a core part of who we were at the time so uh we just wanted to get this book written because we it's really our blood sweat and tears that have have gone into it Um, but the the publisher thought it was way too negative and that really really it needed to be uh, built so being a design agency we we rolled with the recommendation just with a little twist
2: yeah it's a great twist yeah yeah so i it's all like ted said we're we it's all our learned lessons from interacting with organizations that just couldn't essentially tell their story well because they had something internally that kept them from doing it. And so you could have the greatest, we had clients paying us lots of money to do rebrands and then they would never see the light of day because someone was afraid of something or they weren't involved in a meeting and it would just all fall apart. And and that was really shocking. So we came up with a clever way to kind of have both messages on the cover.
1: A lot of my audience are um, beginners, uh, if you will, or, you know, part of the reason why I was excited to have you on is like, I'm a documentary filmmaker, so I've worked with nonprofits, my whole career, those two worlds, you know, uh, align very easily. In terms of communicating messages and purpose, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I still, I always have a soft spot in my heart for helping nonprofits speak at nonprofit conferences, et cetera. And a lot of them struggle with the same things that documentary filmmakers do. You know, lack of resources and money, and you know, sometimes technical know-how. Um, and even if they aren't from a nonprofit world, that's still kind of who I seek to help is is someone who's uh, overwhelmed and under resourced, if you will, right? So let's let's pretend, and I say that to say sometimes I like to just bring it down and keep it grounded and like, let's explain some, some maybe simple concepts for, uh, for some people, but, uh, but not for others. So talk to me about, uh, in your definition, like what is culture, what is brand and then how they
3: interact with Hmm. each other. I'll take culture and then Mark, I'll pass the baton to you for brand. Sound good. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I have kind of, or we have three very, simple ways to understand culture. First, when we're talking about culture with our organizations, right? We're talking about organizational culture. Culture is one of those really blurry words that means a lot of things. So so we're we're honing in on organizational culture, which for us in the most simplest one word definition would be the how of the organization. It's not the what, not the why, not the where, it's the how we show up, how we do the work we do. My metaphor for culture is soil because everything you do is planted in the soil of culture. Culture is either enriching and nourishing or depleting and hurting every single thing you're doing, whether you're for-profit or nonprofit. The more academic definition is that culture is a series of behaviors that create patterns that reflect your actual values, primarily modeled by leadership. I mean, at the end of the day, leaders shape culture. So how they behave, their patterns of behavior are your culture regardless of what you say i i gotta
1: just claim that the culture is soil that's the first time you've ever said that is here on the storytelling lab i have to believe that Uh, but no (laughs) dude it's so it's so good like that like to explain something visually like that you must be designers um no i really really love that thank you Uh, such a great way to explain it um so brand
2: brand uh, yeah, I go by the definition um, established by Marty Newmeyer, who wrote uh, Brand Cap and Designful Company, and Scramble, and all those great brand books and strategy books, um, which is basically that it's what other people say about your organization. It's their opinions, their thoughts, their feelings. And where, where that comes from, which is where we take brand to the next level, is your culture, right? Because if culture is how you show up, it's who you hire, it's what you budget. It's the decisions you make, those all trickle down externally to those who you serve or your customers. And that ultimately shapes their opinions about you.
1: So, do people or organizations rather uh, tend to view these two concepts as separate
3: entities or concepts? Yeah, you're nodding your head. So, okay that's the problem right like i think uh and why we wrote the book right is because there's a ton written on organizational culture from the lens of being healthy and building trust and patrick lencioni and meetings and uh leadership right john maxwell there's a whole arsenal of stuff on culture through the lens of leadership and health Mm -hmm. there's a whole arsenal of stuff on brand uh there's very little about the integration of brand and culture and yet anybody who's gone through a rebrand knows Culture is the tide that rises or lowers the success of that rebrand. Anybody who's addressed organizational culture health knows that if we get healthy, our brand tends to work better. So they're intimately connected. Just very little was written on, especially practically, very little practically was written on how to do it. And that's what the book was. The book was meant to be a practical methodology on how to approach these kind of abstract, ethereal subjects. Mm, mm, mm.
1: Um, this applies to any organization, not just nonprofits, but when is the right point in sequencing to, I'm part of a small startup right now, very small, like less than six, six people, five people on the team. Um, when is the right time to start having these conversations? Because when you are a small team or a startup or something like that, resources are limited, right? Time is limited. So we can't do everything all at the same time. Uh, And I know there are varying opinions on this. In your opinion, when is the right time to start having these conversations and start establishing and like putting the stakes in the ground of, of
2: our culture of
1: our brand?
2: Yeah, I I would say that it's, it's at the beginning because if you get too big, it becomes really hard to turn the ship to, Mm. to change and shift your culture. And while you, you may not be able to do things that you would want to as at a larger size or more revenue or what have you um it's the spirit of those things that matters right and so in the book we talk about the different layers of organizational culture a lot of times when people say oh we have a great company culture what they mean is there's a free cereal bar or free snacks (laughs) or free beer and those are what we call artifacts of culture but there what's the culture that decided that you should have those things for your employees because in some cases those things could be good or bad right is your intent to keep employees working 24 hours a day seven days a week at your central mm. office instead of working at home and spending their with time with their families or is it that you actually want them to save money and you don't want them um uh to spend time driving around like you can actually serve them and so those are two different decisions right uh of how you get to the point where we have a free snack bar as an example yeah.
1: This is really interesting currently because um, I don't know if this is a Gen Z thing or a post pandemic thing, but culturally we we are really far away and pushing back against this whole thing. But we have a slide in the office or like ping pong tables, which for millennials, you know, 2010 or whatever, that was, you know, that was that was the jam. And like people don't care about that anymore. So I love that that the the artifacts of culture What were
3: you about to say, Ted? I think there's this um I think there's this human desire to find the silver bullet, find the gimmick and then cut and paste it into our organization because it works. Oh, Google's doing this, so we need a juice bar. Oh, we need scooters. Oh, we need <laughs> Really what matters is the the leader's intent. Follow followed by empathy. Mm. Like do we know our people and care about them enough to make shifts in our brand that actually offer our employees value? as much or even more as our customers. Because if we get the value prop right for our employees, it's amazing how that translates to value prop for customers.
1: This is such a good point. Like so few people think about it like this, it's Like just like your customers are going to be different than someone else's. <laughs> so are your employees and what they care about and what they need to succeed. But it's like, even me saying it out loud, it's like it's a, a, a light bulb moment, and it shouldn't be,
3: right? Like this is—that's well, why I love the soil metaphor because you know when I lecture on this, you know I—I'm I, a wine guy. I love wine, and I love wine primarily because soil yields radically different grapes through radically different soil. So you've got soils that are customized to climate, to grapes, to growing conditions. Some are slate, some are soft, some are hard, some are calcious. And it's it's a beautiful picture of culture. Culture is not meant to be one static thing—good, bad, healthy, unhealthy. You know, it's meant to be whatever the conditions you're in need to to grow vital grapes.
1: Quick little tangent. Uh, I'm from Eastern North Carolina, which is rich in in culture and history. And the Europeans, you know, when they came over here initially. Could not get wine to, you know, could, grapes to grow because they were growing European grapes, right? Which of course happened in California. So finally, it took them years and years to figure out the scuppernong, you know, uh, uh, grape variety that produces this very sweet muscadine, you know, wine. Uh, but for the longest time, they were like, I can't, I can't get it. I can't do it. But it, it can grow that very well does it taste good? Do you like Scuppernog wine? Like,
3: huh? Yeah, I've actually had that wine. I've done wine tasting in Virginia and yeah. in North Carolina Super and sweet. in other parts of the world where I'm glad for the effort but not proud of the results. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>, it's, <like, laughs> it's thick, baby. It's thick. I like yeah. everything down here. you know, like our yeah. sweet tea. Uh, um,
1: okay. Um, in this, uh, in this concept of culture and brand, what do you find? Let's shift into nonprofits specifically? And this is a big question, so maybe we chip away at it. what are, What do nonprofits generally struggle with in in terms of this? And listen, corporations do too, but we know some of them do it really well. But what do nonprofits uniquely struggle with when it comes to these kinds of, I don't know what to call it, uh, but these these concepts of that aren't just like, bringing in revenue right uh i don't want to say like soft skills or soft concepts but culture brand
2: those things that are kind of in between that the uh the what you do yeah i think the number one um challenge most nonprofits face is that they have these incredible causes yeah and so they they put everything on that cause so we don't need to care about our staff because they're, they're here serve, serve, uh, serving a, a greater good, right? Um, we don't need to worry about our brand because we're helping uh, people in Africa get clean water and our donors will care about that. Um, but you know, the first rule in marketing and branding is that no one cares. Mm-hmm. And so um, what's interesting about that is that people on the donor side, right, um, it's been shown that you have to disrupt them disrupt their thinking and their worldview to get them to consider making a financial contribution to your cause, right? And so we go along this whole time as nonprofits just saying, hey, help people get clean water, help people get clean water. And if you haven't disrupted my worldview about why that's important or what the issues are or how um, my clean water is a privilege and not a right where I live, I'm not going to care as much, right? And then the same thing is about is about people right now. I think it, uh, the, the latest stat I saw was I think sixty five or sixty seven percent of nonprofit professionals are considering leaving their jobs in the next mm. year, and it's you know culture uh, plays a, a role in that. If I am working all the time, if I am not compensated fairly, if I if I am not being able to grow and innovate, um, you know I am going to find those opportunities elsewhere.
3: Mm. I would contribute to that with two thoughts. First, I've talked to a lot of millennials and Gen Z employees of nonprofits, and I almost always will ask them this question. Do you want to work in the nonprofit sector? Like, do you feel like you have to work for a nonprofit or work in the sector? They're like, I mean, no, I want to work for a brand that I think is doing good and changing the world. And I don't care if it's a nonprofit. I I think working in the nonprofit sector is an old school mindset. I think Today, philanthropic you can work for for-profit brands like Patagonia and Ben and & Jerry's and Tesla and Tom's Shoes that are serving to change the world in some ways more powerfully than nonprofits. So I think the nonprofit sector has a huge uphill battle in retaining talent because they're no longer competing within the nonprofit sector. They're competing across the globe with brands that are way more sophisticated and uh, and effective at marketing and communicating value to their employees, Uh, and uh, many of whom care about changing the world. Liquid Death is doing a tremendous amount of good to eradicate plastic, right? They call it murder plastic, and they're a sexy, amazing brand who anybody would want to work for, and they pay pretty well. So I I think there's gonna be a real challenge to add value and retain, recruit, find talent in the nonprofit sector. I think for me, the second point is, um, I find the, the senior leadership of nonprofits have a really hard time articulating culture. You can't scale and shape something you can't name, right? If you can't talk about it and communicate it in sticky ways, you're ultimately just hoping people catch it. And I think one of the things we help our leaders do is figure out what their culture needs to be in ways, language, a lexicon to better communicate it so that it can be scaled and, and cascade down across the organization, not just intuitively held. Hmm.
1: Let me throw, uh, I'm interested in the it's a totally fine and fair point, um, that you make about, you know, corporations now actually being purpose driven and, and trying to, uh, uh, effect change in the world, positive change in the world. Um, I have an idea that I want to just throw out there, or maybe a scenario. And the, the question is, I'll, I'll jump to the end first is like, in what ways should nonprofits behave more like corporations? Um, Kind of uh, along the lines of what you were saying, I've come from video marketing or, you know, filmmaking background. And one thing that I've noticed is that a lot of my nonprofit clients, specifically small to medium nonprofits, uh, did not operate like like a business, at least in this space. And specifically what I mean is they would immediately only see video as as an expense, whereas some of my corporate clients saw it as an investment. Mm. um and so they would oh we can't do that we don't have enough money instead of like well do you like the idea because we can always get creative with the budget and how we execute the idea but does that sound like it's a line and it might speak to your people etc etc and it would be like oh that's that's too much and we haven't even had the money conversation and then i've worked i have worked with nonprofits that get this right um so you you can tackle that specific you know example or the broader Mm. question which is like what success secrets or not secrets, but strategies can nonprofits pull from the corporate world? Cause I think also they're like, they might, this is a generalization view the corporate world as icky or whatever. Like, you know, we're nonprofits cause we're over here, you know, doing philanthropy and trying to, you know, make an impact. Um, okay. I think I've asked the question. There's <laughs> a long Mark, one. You go. Yeah. Uh,
2: well I'll say, um, first I think they need to start acting like brands. Um, mm. And specifically lifestyle brands. So most people want to take part in something to have it a re- as a reflection of their identity, right? And so um, whether it's Red Bull or Liquid Death, both of those say something about me um, as drinks, right? That I, I spend way too much money on one's water and <laughs> one's energy <laughs> drink. Both of them cost way too much money exactly. um, for what they are. But they I buy them because they 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 say something about who I am. Yep. And again, nonprofits get so caught up in the cause, they they forget that they need to meet the donors and and those who they're trying to reach where they're where they are and and bring them along this journey. So how am I how has my identity changed by being a part of this nonprofit whether I'm volunteering or giving um hmm. and so they don't think that way and they and in turn they also have what's called a scarcity mindset, right? Instead of the abundance mindset, which is what you're talking about that because I always have little, um, I have to protect what I have instead of thinking more like a business, which is how do I grow what I have so that I can do the things that I want to do and what, what risks do I need to take? What investments do I need to make? And I mean, you can see, uh, this just with homeboy industries, which is a gang rehabilitation program in LA. Uh, they brought in a new CEO about 10 years ago from the, fortune 500 company and they went from like 10 million to 40 million dollars in revenue um because he got rid of that scarcity mindset it's still there um, because of who they work with and their clients and how they hire ex-gang members and current gang members um and there's that scarcity mindset when you come from that background but it's made a huge difference right so how as leaders can we do that
3: yeah, i think i think everything mark said is is spot on in fact i'm actually writing my own notes down because i think the <laughs> integration of lifestyle brand with nonprofit is a brilliant way to help nonprofit leaders wake aw- awaken to the gap because nobody in the nonprofit space in fact they might think it's audacious wrong bad or evil to think that way like right. that like it's almost like they're the enemy and it's like no they're the ones winning <laughs> they're right, the baby. one getting.
2: But when you think about Taylor Swift as a lifestyle brand, not just a musician, right? She has a, you know, an army of Swifties, right? I don't know how many people, but millions and millions of people that are fans um, or Red Bull or uh, Patagonia. Imagine your nonprofit and your cause had the same number of people willing to take action against something, right? Or for something uh, because they saw that as part of their identity. That would be way more powerful than, you know, a handful of people writing checks at the end of the year.
3: I think the thing I'm noticing the most is um, nonprofits are afraid to take themselves lightly or use humor or levity or be provocative with their videos or their like you look at agencies like 72 and Sunny and the provocative, unbelievably talented, interesting things they do for the brands they serve. Who's doing that in the nonprofit space? We need more of that. There are some, but they're usually small skunkworks people who aren't, you know, they're they're too small to to have people telling them they're wrong, right? And they're like Hannah Song from Liberty in North Korea, this incredible nonprofit brand we worked with and interviewed on Future Nonprofit, you know, just doing incredible things with humor around a really serious issue. We need more of that in the nonprofit space because it works.
2: Yeah. How do you, like in her case, how do you turn rescuing political refugees from North Korea and smuggling them out and relocating them into a, a funny YouTube video, but they figure it out how to do that. And what's interesting about humor is that Oracle just released research i think it's between 80 and 90% of consumers prefer brands to be funny. And yet most of them aren't not just nonprofits but even corporate brands aren't funny.
1: It's such an antiquated idea of like we are professional, right? Like I yeah. I, I We're I, serious. <laughs> right? Like like the world has changed right and like the internet as vague as that, and broad as that is it completely broke down these walls right and so mm-hmm. no longer can the doctor be the professional who i don't ever question because we are hip to it we have mm-hmm. access to information that creates its own problems sometimes yeah. but i'm just saying That's that's a good
2: example. My urologist has his own YouTube video and it's just all (laughs) kinds of inappropriate jokes. (laughs) Right. Uh, and it works. (laughs) I had this, uh, debate with someone very close to me in in the work that I do recently,
1: uh, about this idea of like, oh no, we can't look like anything less than professional. That's what people want. And I'm like, no, people understand uh, that you're just people. People understand that a startup has, uh, problems to overcome every single day. That's yeah. the, the nature of it. And that's why there is this, um, you know, craving for authenticity. I know that's a little overused word these days, but because we we know you're no longer this, you know, this perfect business that I just send my money to and I get my product and everything's great, right? And we also yeah. care about where our money goes. Like, so, right. yeah, that's such a good point. And, and you see it. If you're hip to and spending uh, time on YouTube or TikTok like I do, you see it. You see the brands doing oh, it yeah. well, making jokes, and the people responding. And listen, they buy, they purchase, they, they donate, <laughs> right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh.
2: That's, that's uh, you know, people connect with people at the end of the day, right? And so whether it's, turning a, a brand into a, a essentially a persona and personality and, and getting people to connect to that or having a face that they connect with. They want to connect with people. And it's, it's hard when it's so professional and so yeah. corporate you lose that um, connection.
1: Yeah. I, I, I love the example you used because it is hard to, to uh, think of something uh, like, you know, a refugee and like how to find the humor in that. Yeah. But it's possible, right? You have to be creative, and maybe you don't go to the, you know, funny route. But it's still think opening your mind of different ways you can approach it other than the, you know, typical sad, you know, sad music. You know, yeah. same thing that's been that's been done. The Sarah McLachlan, oh, you know, yeah. Right. The, <laughs> well, in the uh, arms of an angel. Yes.
2: <laughs> right. Well, I mean, World listen, Vision I, I, is a good example of that. That that is, uh, World Vision Canada did that recently with making a commercial about. Um, kids burping and how inappropriate and funny it is for kids to burp. But the reason kids burp is because they have food and water mm. and when they don't have food and water, they don't burp. Right. When they don't, they're not, they do not have full tummies. They, they can't burp. Right. And they don't have enough to drink. They can't burp. And so it's, it's, again, that's that disruptive moment where you're laughing. Right. And then at the end you realize, Oh, we want every kid to have that joke because it means that they're healthy
1: yeah well the thing about you know storytelling and you all know this is it's just emotion right that that gets us so that can be humor right and it's a really effective one and that's what you know gets our attention and then we'll then we'll listen right and so but people are so reluctant to to use that let me let me ask you this in terms of what we're talking about now what is your advice to a small like local nonprofit? uh do they use the same strategy um, or is there a different approach that they should or, or, or could take when you're
2: two to three people, maybe one person, when it comes to like storytelling or culture or brand?
1: Yeah, culture and brand and 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 storytelling, but just the, these concepts that we're talking about, including the you know how to not operate in the scarcity mindset, including mm-hmm. opening up and being creative, yeah. like what we're talking about. Because I think it's more daunting for them to like go out on a limb.
2: Yeah, for
3: sure. I'll start with the culture piece. I I think it would be really helpful for any organization, for profit or nonprofit, but especially nonprofit, to from the very beginning, articulate the behavioral principles that define how we show up and do our work. Not just the what we care about, the mission. What does it look like to be a part of this team? what are the behaviors? What are the standards? What are the things that we do that define us, maybe differentiate us in a way that we can better articulate and understand? Because so much of that is so intuitive and then it ends up not showing up in hiring and then it ends up. So I think Brands need to be much more clear about what makes them them and beginning to articulate that and understand that and do that work early in the process will only add dividends to their hiring and to their growth and scale, um, assuming they grow.
2: I would say on the brand and storytelling side, smaller nonprofits have an advantage over larger nonprofits that they could test and do things that maybe larger ones wouldn't do because they're too corporate and the risk. Point. Um, and it's also and right. allows them to, um, connect personally and be more authentic. Right? So I don't need to hire a huge film crew to make a video. I right. can make one on my my iPhone and do a TikTok check in every day at the homeless shelter or whatever. And, and introduce people and connect people, um, that way. And, I would also say that one of the ways to be creative and innovative is to have a, a diverse set of ideas, um, which means you need a diverse set of people, uh, backgrounds, and and that's hard to do when you're small. And so <laughs> think about you know not just volunteers and financial partners, but partners who are thought leaders or tastemakers that you can um, collaborate with in those times where you need to generate really great ideas you know whether it's a campaign or something and to build out that volunteer team that's just helping you brainstorm stuff
1: you know it's it's almost almost ironic because a smaller organization would benefit the most from from these things and having them intact or you know because they're free right to discuss how you approach like culture and brand is free it's you know that's where you actually can gain an edge on a larger corporation in in your um in your calls. Right. Right. Uh, but the opposite tends to happen. You know, we, we, we see what the, the big guys are doing or whatever, and we try to emulate that or whatever, but it's actually, they have the most to gain by, by going out on a limb or taking a stance and being very clear in terms of your brand. Um, you've mentioned a few people already organically, but who else in the nonprofit space is doing it well, in your opinion?
2: Uh, I mean, Charity Water is, is one that most people talk about. Right. Um, and, uh, it was interesting last year, they ran a huge YouTube campaign that was just their 20 minute documentary about Scott, um, Harrison, the founder's personal story of starting Charity Water and why he did it. Um, which was really moving and again, empathy, emotion, connection, um, all that stuff. Uh, that's real interesting. I think Liberty North Korea is another nonprofit that is doing innovative stuff. Um, we, there's a new story. Um, they're pretty innovative. They do three D, they 3D print houses <laughs> for homeless people in the um, in different countries, yeah. uh, and do microfinancing and micro mortgages. And uh, they're they're pretty innovative in that space. And I don't know Ted, you're. Would you
3: say? Yeah, I think I think on the larger scale of you know non nonprofits, those you know I think there are some large nonprofits that operate just like a complete institution and you know very behind behind the times. But then there are some who are really huge, but operating with all this great innovative energy and, and prioritizing innovation. And, and for me, those would include um, Oxfam. Oxfam has a a director of innovation who is given a lot of uh, influence and power and authority within the organization, uh, Latte Lawson Latergo, an amazing guy, Dr. Latte Lawson Latergo. So I think Oxfam is is really a great example of a large brand not letting its age and legacy build a crust that prevents it from being relevant or helpful. And then uh, I think what we're happening, what we're seeing happen with the... um, the World Food Program and um, some of the innovation work being done there is is profound. And again, I think it's p- producing incredible results within a gigantic nonprofit that is seeking world change. Um, they have some incredible people doing some great things.
2: And on the smaller side, I think uh, Dollar Four, which is a patient advocacy organization um, that works with patients to get their medical bills, um, basically deleted um so there's a law called charity care in the united states and that means every hospital that is a nonprofit uh has to provide free medical care to keep their tax status and um, this organization has a database that you know has scammed like scanned all of the websites and pulled all that information in and they work with uh patients but they're they're basically like a tiktok first nonprofit like as far as like how they blew up and got became famous and grew is all through tiktok and social media and the interesting thing about that organization is um Jared Walker their their founder and CEO um his innovation comes through being super humble so if you're small like uh like they were and you don't know what you're doing like ask people like own the the fact that you um may not have enough experience and go find those who do and be humble and and get mentoring and and get coaching and you'd be surprised like how quick you can grow as an organization when you're you're a humble leader
1: uh since you mentioned social media and tiktok specifically um i usually do a um, a biannually um Big online summit for um, community boost, which is like a nonprofit uh, fundraising uh, organization, and always the people are there interested in storytelling content or storytelling sessions, Um, which is you know normally what I'm speaking on. What are the ways, like for those listening? This is the storytelling lab, after all. what are the ways and why should uh, someone in communications or marketing at a nonprofit lean on that skill of storytelling? Because we have so many different ways that you can use it, not just TikTok or video, mm-hmm. um, but
3: within all, all of their messaging. Why? Why? I think there's a macro storytelling strength that is brand centric. And so many brands we find in the nonprofit space just don't tell a good macro story. Their macro brand messaging is out of alignment. It's not compelling. It's stat heavy instead of uh, compelling and engaging for the end user. Uh, And, you know, I think that that storytelling skill is something um people who can write decently think they have but writing well and telling a story are very different skills
2: yeah there there's most nonprofits we interact with i will say um have testimonies not story yeah stories and so say more please yeah so i have a whole soapbox (laughs) on this so so get ready get on Uh, it uh so testimonies is is information based so our nonprofit through your donations we're able to house 100 homeless people this winter so yep. they didn't die Stats. in the storm right that is a testimony um story is actually narrative um built on whether storytell good storytellers known or not neuroscience so there are things that happen in uh, our brain that get us to remember things so most people make decisions actually almost all people based on research makes decisions uh, based off of emotion and then back those decisions based off of logic right when it comes to purchasing and so the emotional part of your brain or the limbic system is the strongest part uh of the brain and that's it stores things that it can then recall later um that the prefrontal cortex will then use as justification you know to try to make sense of these things but so you want to activate that and and the way that happens um is by people imagining in their mind's eye uh, the story and so whether that's i'm watching a video and then i can see myself in that video um as either as the main character as a bystander but i'm just immersed in that video or i'm reading something or listening to something and that same thing happens i start to imagine it in my brain when that happens it's actually activating the limbic part of your system and you're you're storing pieces of that story in your brain in your memory and the only way that happens is through specific details that trigger our own senses so this is called narrative transportation and so if you don't have like specific details that would trigger one of the five senses like um you know we walked into a room and it smelled the urine was so bad it smelled like ammonia like instantly everyone knows what that means, right? Like, and so you can start imagining what that is in your brain already. Um, and so people don't realize that if your story isn't doing that, you're not activating the part of your brain that's actually going to remember that story, that's activating the emotional part. Um, then there's a bunch of other things that you can layer on top of that. So that's called narrative transportation. You need to activate some of the, one of the five senses or a few of them. Um, and then, on top of that, um, there are three key uh, chemicals that you want to leverage in your storytelling in your brain. So that's uh, cortisol, oxytocin, and dopamine. Cortisol is the thing that if you are into action movies or spy movies like I am, um, that like thriller feel, like I don't know what's going to happen next, uh, that anxiety, that rush, adrenaline um, feeling that you have, uh, is cortisol. And, and when you have a cliffhanger, um, your brain is going to kick that in and that's gonna, um, create, uh, the need to kind of fulfill what that open loop is, right? Which is another term, uh, in, in storytelling. And so, uh, you want to create that so that it creates the desire to continue, um, engaging in the story. Uh, whereas, um, oxytocin is the relationship you build with the characters right? That's going to come out of connection, right? We always say like, why do people want to see authentic content? It's, it's actually because there's a chemical in their brain that's, that happens when they do, and it, it makes, it feels good. And that's oxytocin, right? That's the relationship and connection chemical. So how are we connecting with the heroes or the, the the subjects in the story? Are we, are we building relationship with them? And then finally, um, dopamine, this is the happy outcome part right? This is the um, thing that we're always like, you eat a bunch of favorite, your favorite cake or candy or whatever, it's going to spike your dopamine, right? Um, And that's how are you actually making that change in the individual's lives that you talked about in the story and on a macro level too. that happy outcome um, or happy ending. That's uh, the um, dopamine. And so those are like some just high level key components that we don't even realize guys good storytellers were doing, but they it needs to be there for people to engage and in content and if
3: it's it. not already obvious, the reason all this stuff matters is because the brands that fail to make radical emotional connection with their audience will fail the yeah. The game is emotional connection and stats don't do that. Poverty porn won't do that. <laughs> Right. You have to tell a story, make a connection, and not just presume or assume that your cause matters to everybody as much as it matters to you.
2: Right. Hmm. And and as even small organizations realize the science behind storytelling, it, you don't need to spend a million dollars on a video. Right. No. You could you could do it in a podcast. You can do it on your phone. You can do it in an email. Um, and it, it's a huge unlock.
1: <laughs> I had a I had a. Um a non-potential non-profit client contact me one time and they showed me this spot that they that they wanted to like they wanted to create something very similar not completely bite it but you know it inspired it i'll use that word and it was a nike spot and by from made by wyden and and kennedy right like it probably cost two million dollars and, you know, we talked, they showed me, I was like, okay, I get it. And they really wanted to like replicate a lot of what it had. And it had tons of extras, et cetera, et cetera. And they came away with like, uh, yeah, we, we all, we've got $5,000. And I tried to explain to them, I was like, this probably cost a million dollars to make. Like, we got to come at it from a different angle. Like, talk about the emotion that we want to yeah. conjure up. Talk about the impact we're trying to have, who we're trying to, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then we can think about a creative way to do it. Like, you're yeah. right. It doesn't, it doesn't. Have to cost a lot, but when you still just try to compare yourself or operate as as a company that's using one of the best agencies in the world ever, yeah, you you will always lose that battle if you tried to
2: replicate that video with five grand. It's not happening. And 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 your donors and your audience that you're trying to reach know it when they yeah. see it, and it's just you know a rip off something else and it's low quality. Yeah, um and the, the low quality isn't even the production it's just that the idea itself was low yeah. quality because you just had yeah. to copy you
1: somebody. can that's the beauty of where we are now with content creation is like you can do low quality like people don't mm. care about that as much they respond more to somebody just kind of rattling off the dome mm. at their at their camera you know yeah. often right right they right. still like okay. like good production but you don't have to have it these days that's Ooh. what frustrates me sometimes yeah. is like the little guys you have so much opportunity now. Like, think the the playing field is evening out in a lot of ways in terms of totally. marketing.
2: I mean, I think it would, an example of that is really interesting. Is one of uh, Old Spice's most successful campaigns wasn't the elaborate commercials that they were making, but it was one set, one camera, and a guy on Twitter, or sorry, formerly X, formerly <laughs> Twitter. Um, that is like they're they're making videos that people are tweeting comments about at them in real time and just posting that and and they saw the largest spike in one day sales ever in their history because of that campaign um granted their quality was high because they were sure. using an agent agency but like that format right Is yeah. just one it campaign, didn't have to be guy. it, it wasn't be the production all. quality that made that it, compelling no, right it was just that i'm responding in real time to you with <laughs> video which like what yeah. um so thinking about like how how you can do that. Like, and going back to the advantage of small nonprofits, um, you have an opportunity to create high touch moments that larger organizations are going to struggle all the time. And you can use content and storytelling to do that.
1: Absolutely. Well said. Uh, You all have been working together. Like your agency has been up for a while now, right? About yeah, ten, about years. 10 years. 10 years. Um, what led you to that? Like, do you work, first of all, exclusively with nonprofits or just predominantly? Yes, no? Uh, I mean, well,
3: uh,
2: Mark, you, you answered yeah, that because I'll yeah. get it. Wrong. Yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, so, predominantly nonprofits. Uh, occasionally, we'll work with um, cause driven uh, for profits, but our, our specialties in, in the nonprofit space. I mean, and here's now, what
3: I'll say about that really, really quick, just since sure. we're talking about culture. There's nothing more complex organizationally. Than a nonprofit. Maybe the most complex nonprofits, a faith-based nonprofit. Because you've got theology, mission, relationship, professional connection, and a, an expectation of sacrificing. If you can figure out how to navigate those tensions well, mm. it's unbelievable what you learn, the wisdom you glean that applies to the for-profit space. The nonprofit space is incredibly complex and getting it right is why I feel like we're so equipped to help organizations outside the nonprofit space, but our heart passion and work is almost entirely not nonprofit.
1: Well, so what m- led you all to make that conscious choice? Because it is complex and it is challenging. Um,
3: wh- why, why, we're all nonprofit people. We care about making the world better. We understand the complexity. We have a passion for it. We feel called to that sector.
2: Uh, and it's huge enough. It's big enough. It's giant on its own. Yeah, mm-hmm. About 1.5 million nonprofits in the United States. I, I think, too, it's also that we... It's something that we evolved over time. Uh, we have, have always worked with nonprofits, but also worked with small businesses and other types of organizations, and or big businesses, banks, higher ed. Um, but I think what we found was that we were uniquely suited um, as leaders to, to speak insight and truth, if you will, to mm-hmm. nonprofit organizations um, in a way that was winsome and funny and self-deprecating and allowed it's allowed for change uh to happen and so we kind of just kept doing it um and more and more doors opened up
1: well i think i'm making an assumption here but but i think that also when when you realize the uh significance of the impact that you can have on a group of people or organizations it makes it um more fulfilling, you know, yeah. for that to be like what you focus your, your career on. So was it, did you have that kind of moment, you know,
3: where it was just like, look, yeah, we're really kind of helping. Amazing. I mean, Mark's talking about those emotions, those chemicals, you know, I think in some yeah. ways, when I mean, we contribute in helping a brand, we care about who he believes doing good in the world, be better, do more good, be more effective. It, it really is. Um, compelling. And it really does feel like we're actually contributing to making the world better. Not that for profit brands don't make the world better. Many of them do. And there's a great case. In fact, I would say any of the for profit brands we make, we're we're working with them as out of extension of a nonprofit board member on a nonprofit, who's running a very purpose driven for profit, right? Mm -hmm. So that can be fulfilling as well. But um, usually the nonprofits are just in more Need <laughs> a bigger mess so I, I I'm curious
1: you've all worked together did you work together before the agency like in the past ten years
3: yeah we yeah. we met because I was doing a lot of higher level strategy vision type work, mm-hmm. and I didn't know where to go for brand and design, and Mark did and was really creative and talented in that space, so I would just keep calling Mark and <laughs> at the time, a guy named Jeremy we worked with and um And eventually, we were like, why don't we just bootstrap something and kind of make it work? And we did, and it worked. And then we went through the journey of taking all the work I was doing in culture and vision and strategy and integrating that into our design thinking agency and really reforming ourselves from the Mm -hmm. inside out. And that's really what led to the book and the idea that culture and brand are the same conversation. And strategy is the foundation under both of them. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I was gonna get to the book.
1: I'm glad you 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 led us there. Um, but I think I might have the answer. I'm gonna ask the question anyway. Like, I'm curious about writing, like co-writing the book. I know you're not the first to do it. I think about it too when I see two directors. Right, it's got to be challenging. And also, aren't you tired of each other yet? <laughs> um, how did you? Approach well, we live in different states. Yeah, yeah. I see you two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it had to be challenging. Um, to create this thing that is generally uh, driven by one, you know, one individual, it's their thoughts that they are putting out to the world. Um, how did you a- a
2: pro- approach that? Well, I think we have uh, unique personalities that allow us to take different sides t- to the book. So, um, a lot of the research in more technical stuff is on, on my side and, and Ted is speaking into the, the stories and the, um, the culture and, and the perspective from the leader. And so those seem to work well together. I don't know, Ted, what are, you, what are your,
3: yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think Mark and I have very different gifts and styles, but they're incredibly complementary. Uh, very yin and yang. And I think that shows up in the work we do in the agency, uh, in historic, in, in our consultancy. I mean, you know, I, I have uh, thoughts on creativity and design, but Mark's gifted in that space um I'm gifted in leadership and culture and and mark has incredible insight so I think in many ways we we respect each other's lanes but but also understand and have input and huge respect for each other's perspective um so it just it works well and I, I also think the journey we've been on over 10 years um it's it's unbelievably compelling to kind of grow and figure stuff out and keep surviving. You know, like, I mean, 50% of success is survival, right? So just the journey of survival and figuring it out is actually unbelievably fun and compelling if you're not shedding too much blood in the process. <laughs> it's like, uh,
1: it's like the, you know, Play-by-play guy and the color commentator. You know, you need them yeah. both to get that complete experience, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Final question: um, What would you like to see nonprofits uh, leverage more going into 2024 and beyond in this new age of you know, AI? And I mean, I'm not suggesting that's your answer, but just the world is changing, boys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you like to
3: see them lean on more uh, in the near future? I'll I'll answer with something we talked about earlier. I would like to see them better leverage, excuse me, better leverage their uh, stakeholders, primarily staff, by understanding how they can add value to their staff, how the value prop for their staff can be just as real and powerful and tangible it is for the donors. Because I think most staff and most nonprofits are on the edge of burnout are working as some sort of martyr, which is unhealthy and toxic, and um, and the more we can fix that, the more we will see nonprofits blossom and grow. I, I would bet there's a roughly one third of the productivity in nonprofits is wasted by sideways energy, drama, lack of efficiency, um, and I think figuring out how to grow the health and the, and add the value to the nonprofit staff is going to be a huge uh, leverage for growth and health and. Most people miss that because they're all just busy bleeding for the cause.
2: Yeah. I would say um, not necessarily AI, but the need to have a space for innovation within the organization so that mm-hmm. AI would fall into that and whatever comes after AI would fall into that. But you need people within the organization that are forward-looking, thinking about how do we do things differently Um you know, getting rid of the, this is the way it's always been done phrase that a lot of (laughs) people in nonprofits will say sometimes. Um, And taking that seriously because, uh, you know, um, the average tenure of a Fortune 500 or S&P 500 company um, used to be 60 years on the S&P 500. Uh, And the next few years, the average lifespan will be 12. Mm. And most of the, you know, top 10 companies in the world didn't exist 60 years ago and some of them didn't exist 20 years ago or 10 years ago so um you know nonprofits will be in that same boat if if we don't you know start taking innovation seriously and more importantly the problems will still exist you know it's it's crazy that um extreme poverty is still a problem when there is enough food in the world to feed everybody um it's it's a challenge when we spend so much you know the united states is the largest um giver of funds per capita in the world yet we still have so many problems so
1: yeah i don't think the role of nonprofits uh, is going away anytime soon even though we do right. have these for-profit uh purpose-driven companies out there uh mark ted thank you so much um the the authors of culture built my brand uh which the design is incredible i'll reiterate i love I, lo- I love the cover um thank you i appreciate it man like the way you all explained concepts that i was familiar with was still like extremely eye-opening for me the way you worded them the soil yeah thank you uh but yeah i appreciate your time so much and and i come from a place where i've been serving and working with nonprofits for almost 20 years now too so uh it's it's a big part of my heart and so uh, i i uh, especially appreciate these kinds of episodes because Mm. it helps the people that i that i seek to help too so thank you for your time appreciate you being here grateful to be here
3: thank you all right have a great day guys take care bye-bye
1: my name is rain bennett Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. If you're already a subscriber and you're enjoying the show, give us a review and let us know the value that you've gotten from it. We love to hear from our listeners and learn about the benefits that they're getting from the show. That's what fuels us and that's what fuels the show. And if you've already subscribed and you've already reviewed it and you think there's someone else that would benefit from listening to this show, please, please share it with them. The more we grow, the more we can help you grow, and that's what we're here to do. Join us next time on The Storytelling Lab. This podcast is a 6 Second Stories production. 6 Second Stories is a story coaching and consulting company that builds online education, in-person and virtual training, and digital products that help businesses master storytelling to find their ideal customers and market to them effectively. You can learn more at sixsecondstories.com and purchase the book Six Second Stories at Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com or Rainbennett.com slash Six Second Stories.